You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. 1 Samuel chapter 28. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the armies of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself, and put on other garments, and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, Full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had not eaten, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand, and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you, and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it 
And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask now that you'd keep your promises, promises that your word would bear fruit in our midst. And so, God, may we approach your word with the gravity it deserves. May we delight in your word in the way it deserves. May we listen to your word with the seriousness it deserves. May we seek to obey your word because it is your word. And so, God, may we count it as precious and good and beautiful. In your name we pray. Amen. So we have a fun one today. We have witches, we have indoor, um, we have reasons why you shouldn't watch Star Wars movies, um, and uh, we have Philistines gathering for war. Um, so I want to jump in, we're going to do three things. One, I'm going to outline the story that we just heard for us, um, then we're going to draw our attention to three different things in this story uh, that are important, and then uh, we're going to look at two different things um, that I believe we need to learn from this story as we leave here um, today. So first, kind of an outline of the story. The chapter begins um, kind of setting up where we're going to be going next week, which is setting up David's conundrum. Um, David uh, has been living with a, uh, under the um, service of a, uh, a relatively well-behaved Philistine. Um, he has uh, become uh, an ally with this Philistine, and this Philistine now... Um, Achish comes to him and says, you're going to be my bodyguard for life. Um, you're going to be my right-hand guy. And we are now going to go to war with Israel. Um, and so David finds himself in a conundrum, and the text is just going to leave us there until we get to chapter 29. And the conundrum is, does he betray this relatively well-behaved Philistine who's taking care of him and give him a city, um, or does he betray his own people? Um, and so that's the situation set up for us there in that first paragraph. Um, and it's going to set up an opportunity for us to see God's provision again for David. And again, that provision coming through difficulty um, or seeming rejection. And so once that's established, uh, uh, we're going to kind of set that aside and now look specifically at Saul's situation. The Philistines have gathered now once again uh, to wage war on Israel and to wage war against Saul and the armies of Israel. Um, Saul, uh, seeing this, is terrified. He sees the size of the army, he sees what he's facing, and he is sorely afraid, deeply afraid, and he's faced with a problem. Um, the text, you'll notice, um, points out, this is the way, by the way, I cheat and give you other things to observe in the text before we get to the actual observation portion of the sermon. Um, one thing to quickly observe and see in the text is he turns to the Urim um, and he does not get any words from the Lord. The prophets themselves are silent. Um, he's not receiving any word from God from the prophets. 
and he's having no dreams. Um, and so God has remained silent, is not speaking to Saul. They're not on speaking terms. And so Saul, panicking, then goes uh, to find for himself a witch, which is, I guess, what you do when you panic. You go and find yourself a witch. Now, the problem is, is that Saul, in the early days of his reign, the good days of his reign, um, had run all in accordance with the laws of God, in accordance with what we see in numerous texts in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, um, had run all the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Medium, by the way, is someone who communes with the dead. A necromancer is one who speaks on behalf of the dead. Um, those are kind of technical terms for those of you that aren't familiar and up to speed on the latest lingo around witchcraft. Um, and so... Uh, Saul is um, going to go and find one of these uh, ladies uh, to help him have a conversation uh, with Samuel. Um, They've all been run off, though, as Saul was instructed to do in his obedience to the law of God. One of his jobs as the king was to do that. Um, And so he has to go to Endor um, to find himself a witch. Um, Knowing that he has probably a bad reputation in the witch community, um, he takes off his kingly robes and then goes to Endor, um, trying to disguise himself so that he won't be recognized as the king who persecuted the witches. So going there, um, he goes with two men, two servants with him, and he comes to the, the lady. Um, and, uh, and he comes to the lady. The lady uh, then um, kind of lets him know, like, hey, I'm putting my life in danger by doing this because we all know what Saul did to us. Um, doesn't know she's talking to Saul. Saul says, um, then, very, very ironically in verse 10, but, but Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. He then asks for Samuel. The woman, surprised <laughs> to see Samuel, uh, which we'll get into the implications of that in a minute, um, is very afraid, cries out, because uh, something's happening that in her normal practice of witchcraft doesn't usually happen, which is she called for someone and they actually showed up. Um, Samuel comes, uh, and in seeing Samuel, she recognizes now that this is Saul uh, and points out that he's deceived her. Saul and Samuel then have a conversation. Samuel uh, saying, why have you disturbed me? Why are you bothering me right now? I'm having a great time. Um, why are you calling me to have this conversation? Saul explains the situation. Um, the Philistines are coming to make war against me, and God won't answer me. Um, God won't tell me what I'm supposed to do. Samuel says, uh, why are you asking me these things? You've made yourself an enemy of God, and he's simply going to do what he's already promised he was going to do. He's going to kill you. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, and Israel's army will be defeated And the throne will be given to your neighbor, David. Saul then uh, falls down. Um, It's likely that he fasted in kind of preparation for this uh, sitting with the witch. Um, In falling down, uh, she pleads with him to eat. He says no. She and then his servants. um, This has been a theme that's been developing over the last few chapters. Saul's servants aren't very good servants. Um, Encourage him to eat at the table of demons in the house of the dead with a witch. And so he breaks bread there and then leaves um, later that night. There's the story. This would be a great like, episode. If there was Samuel was made into a television series, this episode would have a great like, 
lead in with David kind of getting you ready. You'd have to watch the next episode. If it was on Netflix, you'd just hit play next. Um, and, uh, and because, um, and you'd have a self-contained episode here. So what's going on? What should we notice from this story? Um, first, it's interesting in the second paragraph that three different avenues by which God had already spoken to Samuel are listed. Um, Samuel has, or Saul has heard from God in these particular places and he goes back to them to hear again, but God is silent and God is silent for a reason. He's always, if he's silent, he's silent for a reason. And so he goes to the Urim. The Urim represented the, uh, it, it was the, the robe of the priests. Um, God spoke his law through his priests to God's people. Saul goes to the priests and God does not speak. And if you'll remember, Saul had all the priests killed. Saul had declined to hear the word of the Lord, had silenced the word of the Lord. The gracious and difficult word of the Lord by massacring the priests. And so God no longer speaks to him through the priests. It says here that the prophets were silent. There was no word given to Saul from the prophets. But if you remember, the word of the Lord came to, to, to Saul through the prophet Samuel again and again and again. And Saul had neglected, denied, and disobeyed the word of the Lord that had come to him through the prophets and ultimately silenced the prophets by tearing Samuel's robe. So Saul could not hear the word of the Lord coming from the prophets because God remained silent when Saul declined to hear the voice of the Lord through the prophets. And last, dreams. A notable throughout scripture is that God generally speaks to kings. His voice comes to kings through dreams. You see this again and again with, um, in particular, most immediately with David and Solomon. God comes and delivers his promises, delivers his instructions, delivers his words to the king through dreams. Saul had not heeded God's warnings given to him in dreams, even dreams that amounted to a troubling spirit. And so God remained silent, would not answer Saul through dreams. Think about that more deeply and more intentionally in just a minute. There's a sobering word at the bottom of this observation. You can only resist the words of God for so long. It is a precious and glorious thing, deeply undervalued, that God is speaking everywhere. I mean, we live in Colorado. <laughs> if you pull out onto I-70 right now in our house, if you tiptoe at the right angle in our kitchen and you look through the windows, 
You can see just the top of the white mountains sticking up. We live in a place where all of creation is shouting the words of God to us, according to Psalm 19. We have a book, a collection of all the places where God has spoken by dreams and by prophets and through the priests and the law. Just an abundance of the word of God coming to us and shouting at us and being spoken to us, surrounded and immersed in the words of God. When we come in this room, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we sing the word, we confess the word, we pray the word, we read the word, we preach the word, we, we, we celebrate the word at this table. The word of God is everywhere and you can only ignore it for so long. And so for Saul, God has now gone silent. Now, mediums and necromancers. <laughs> what, are, what are we supposed to make of this, biblically? Um, in the scriptures, we see kind of two different things happening, and they kind of get blended together. There's overlap in these circles I'm about to describe for you. Um, on the one hand, you see mediums, necromancers, witches, that are actually commun- which, which are claiming to speak for the dead, claiming to speak uh, on behalf of the spirits who, who are in fact in communion with demons, with evil spirits. We, we see this in Isaiah as he condemns the practice of witchcraft craft among Israel. But what you also see in Isaiah is that there was kind of a, a racket set up here um, as these witches and necromancers and mediums um, set up shop and kind of, you would come in and they would have light and fire and smoke and maybe the right kind of spooky music playing in the background. They would set up a whole scenario to kind of manipulate their marks emotionally um, uh, in order that they might have a racket, make some money and turn over what they want. One of the themes that develops is Um, As the word of the Lord is ignored, you see this in the prophets, one of the things that happens um, among the Israelites is the practice of witchcraft increases. And I think there's an interesting reason why. We can only live on a word from God. And if we don't want this word, we will look anywhere for another word. If we won't trust what God says, God has shouted and spoken and sung to us, and we want to cast this aside, we'll look anywhere for some other word, some other place to to find a word from God. And last, there's an emphasis in this text um, that kind of arises out of the rest of 1 Samuel on robes and on tables, on eating and what you're wearing. There's an irony in this text. Saul takes off his royal robes, the royal robes that God says he himself is going to remove from Saul, um, and he removes them so that he won't be recognized. And the way that Samuel is recognized is by his robes. So the witch... 
um, describes uh, Saul. She says, Samuel's coming. She says, he's like, okay, it's, it's almost like there's a little test going on in the text. And Saul says, all right, well, to describe him for me. She describes the robes that Samuel is wearing. The, the robes, by the way, that Saul himself tore. And Saul says, okay, this is Samuel. Um, what you wear, robes are not just kind of what you happen to be wearing today. They are actually a marker of dignity, a marker of office, um, a, a marker of honor. So for Saul to go to a witch and remove his royal robes, remove the markers of his authority, of his honor, of his dignity, to do so is actually very appropriate, even though he's doing it simply to fool her. And for him to recognize the authority of Samuel, for Samuel to be seen for who he is because of his robes, is also appropriate. There's also an emphasis on tables. You remember that um, Saul sits with and eats with um, the priests at the beginning when he's first anointed by Samuel. He then sits and eats with the prophets um, at the beginning. Um, these represent the two offices that, that Saul has rejected um, in his tyranny and his rebellion against the rule of God. And here at the end of his life, 24 hours before he dies, he sits in the house of the dead, he sits with a witch, and he breaks bread, and he eats. I think the center of this text is about the cautionary tale that is Saul. Here's a man anointed with the very authority of God to rule the people of God. He sat and he ate with the prophets, those who spoke the words of God. He sat and ate with the priests, um, those who delivered the law of God and taught the law of God to God's people. And look how far he's fallen. His robes removed and he's eating at the table of the dead. How did he get there? Before we get into how he got there, um, I want to talk first about witches and magic and the world that we live in. There's danger when we come to a text like this. Um, I think there's a part of our brain that, that likes to... Sh- we come to these texts that seem fantastical, that don't fit with our materialistic, naturalistic um, presuppositions about how the world is and how the world works. Um, and so we kind of create a little alternative, kind of like a little off-ramp in your brain. This isn't something we should take literally. This is a nice mythological story, and who knows what actually was going on um, in this story. And, uh, and I want to just address that, even though I don't think that's the center point of the text. It's actually something that, that, that deeply matters. I think as we live as Christians with a biblical view of the world, um, living in that world, and frankly, if you're here and you're not a Christian, um, I think there's something potentially very dangerous something, but, but something that longs for the mystery and the glory, the, the magic, if you will, of what the Bible tells us about how the world operates. As modern evangelical Christians, we tend to see and view the world through two kind of primary lenses, um, one or the other, and then people fight about it. <laughs> Um, the one is that we see the world and we just accept a kind of Newtonian, naturalistic, materialistic, kind of mechanical view of how the world works. 
um, that, that it functions by a set of natural laws. This causes this, and this causes this, and this causes this. And if you see this happen, um, it's just a matter of time. You need to find the naturalistic cause behind it. You can find that cause, and there you go. That explains everything all the way down. This is false. The other view, which is closer but still problematic, views the world as primarily naturalistic, materialistic, mechanical, um, everything those people believe. The only difference is that God occasionally intervenes and breaks his own rules. And we call these people charismatics and we call these people cessationists um, and we think that explains how the world is. But it's not how the world is. In fact, I, I, I would rather explain what, how do we make sense of a world where Elijah can take just a small bit of flour and feed a family for weeks and months? How do we explain a world where the God of the universe who spoke everything into being became a baby? How do we explain a world where a man walked on water? How do we explain a world where where eyes are opened to see um, myriads of angels surrounding the enemies of God? How do we explain a world where the Red Sea is divided, like just split, and the land becomes dry? How do we explain, perhaps most importantly, a world where Jesus came out of the grave Well, you stop trying to explain it. Um, I, I have uh, a small, not small, it's actually a fairly large curiosity about the nature of physics. And my wife and I were talking the other night. She's teaching physics, um, or a little portion of physics. She's giving me a look, like, don't put that on me. Um, and uh, um, and we, she was there, you know, learning some basic Newtonian laws of physics. And uh, I um, began giving her a hard time as I just recently listened to, um, this is what you do when you're nerdy. Um, I found online this old uh, lecture from John Finham on uh, lectures on physics that he gave at Cornell University. And they are fantastic. I mean, this guy was a brilliant, brilliant lecturer. He was a brilliant physicist, but, but really good in front of people explaining ideas. Um, and so the first whole chunk of this lecture... John Finham's giving. He's just explaining kind of a Newtonian observations of the world and rules that can be derived from it and how much those rules explain so much about how the world works and, and, and how things are and how much you can just start deriving from those rules and those observations about how the world is. And then in this brilliant moment in the middle of his lecture, John Finham stops and he says, um, it's wonderful. I mean, look at all these things that you can do. Of course, none of it's true. But it really looks true. And it works 99.9% of the time. But we now know this isn't what the world is. It's not um, a set of blocks all put together to make this piece of wood. It's actually mostly empty space. And then the further and further and further he gets into the lecture, more he just sounds like a magician. (laughs) Essentially describing a world that says, we don't know exactly how any of this works. But we know if you do these things, these things tend to happen, but sometimes they don't happen and we're not quite sure how they, don't ha- how they happen. There's this whole 
particle that if, if we know where it is, we don't know how it's moving. Um, if we know how it's moving, we don't actually have any idea where it is. I, I mean, just mystery upon mystery upon mystery. So that physics, actually physics, the history of physics of the last hundred years is just a deep dive into mystery and the most brilliant minds in the history of the world throw up their hands and say, we don't actually know how this works. We just know we can kind of do this and we can kind of do this and when we do this, we see this and when we do this, we see this, but sometimes we don't see this. I mean, our understanding of the world, um, the, the materialistic, mechanical view of how the world works and how the world is, is just false. We live in a world flooded with grace, flooded with beauty, flooded with magic. And what we have with this witch is this constant human tendency. And we sometimes call it magic and we sometimes call it science. To take the world that God has made and try to leverage it in order to bring coercion to others. But that's the dark sort of magic. If you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings, it is a beautiful telling of, of the, the temptation of evil magic over against the beauty of receiving the magic of this world, the grace of this world. Um, the Ring of Power is an attempt to leverage magic to coerce, to glorify, to destroy. Um, whereas you see Gandalf, I almost said Gondor, but that would have been misusing the story. I start the story again in Thanksgiving, so it's I'm a few months off from getting all, everything back again. You see Gandalf, who, who's he's magic. But his magic is the kind of magic that just receives the glory, the beauty um, of what is there, of how the world is. Oh, if you have grown cold in this sort of mechanistic, materialistic, Newtonian world, don't merely see the scriptures and stories even like this one as kind of weird, odd breaks with reality or maybe just mythological narratives. Pray that you'd see this world flooded with grace, flooded with beauty, flooded with mystery, unpredictable in unfathomable, oftentimes terrifying ways, but glorious all the way down where God is constantly doing things to surprise us and to stun us. So the first point of application, I would say, is to see the world again as filled with beauty and mystery and magic. And don't try to manipulate that world. Don't try to manipulate the world that God has made and try to coerce it into um, a, 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 an avenue of power for you, but rather receive from the hand of God all of that beauty, all of that mystery. Give thanks in the midst of all of it. But this misuse of magic, misuse of the world, leads us to consider more closely the story 
of Saul. The word of the Lord abounds to us. I I mean, to, to have in one nicely leather bound book the words of the prophets and the priests and the kings given to us. To be surrounded with the beauty of God's creation shouting to us. Do not treat God's word as a small miracle, as a small thing, as a thing to be dismissed or perhaps weighed in your own heart over whether you like it or you don't like it, or whether you're comfortable with it or whether you're uncomfortable with it. Saul is a cautionary tale of what happens when the word of God is ignored and disregarded. Saul not hearing the voice of God then turns to, 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 to being manipulated, willfully manipulated to go and find, as Isaiah describes the mediums and the necromancers and the witches, um, uh, their tents are filled with whirs and chirps, um, goes to, be, um, to, 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 to come in and, and, and in the midst of the whirs and the chirps and the smoke and the lights, try to feel better, try to feel close to God, try to get some mysterious word from the Lord to himself when God in his grace and his mercy has spoken. And are we any different? Rather than hearing the words of the Lord and trusting the words of the Lord and learning to love the words of the Lord, we turn away from it, we ignore it, we refuse to listen to it, and we, we talk of God as being silent. And so we go off looking for chirps and whirs, for lights and smoke, and the right chord progression, the right tone, a comforting word. God himself has spoken to us commanded us, promised us, forgiven us, warned us. So we turn away from what God has said and turn instead to lights and smoke machines and chord progressions and the right kind of worship setting and the right kind of Um, the right kind of book which will um, tell us the things that our ears already want to hear. Instead of listening to the terrifying and the beautiful voice of God. And I get it. There are things that God says that are hard that are fierce, that that are terrifying to treat with seriousness. But do you want a domesticated God? A small God? God who's like a weighted blanket, like the one I'm going to put on this afternoon as I watch some football, sleep through football? Or do you want the depths and the riches and the majesty of the Grand Canyon? 
the glories of the Rockies, the, the, the terror and the wonder, the beauty and the grace, the horror, the, the, the sheer feasting celebration of what it is to encounter the actual God who is actually there and is not silent. Oh, do not turn away. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, as you hear the Bible and you read the Bible and you hear the Bible preached and you hear the Bible sung and and, and you encounter things in the text that terrify you, that you find even distasteful, I would plead with you, do not turn away. No one else has the words of life. It might feel jarring. It might feel terrifying. It might feel unsettling. But these are the words of life and glory and goodness and righteousness and beauty. And you were made to hear them and to love them and to be shaped by them and to understand the world through them and to to, to engage with the world through them and to delight in the God who said them. To obey the God who commands them. And to receive the promises of this God who makes promises, unthinkably beautiful promises to his people. The result of turning away from the words of God is that you make God your enemy. It's... it's, I think the most terrifying part of this text is verse 16. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? Oh, if you resist the word of God, if you rebel against the words of God, if you dismiss the words of God, if you you refuse to obey the words of God, if you refuse to honor the words of God, then you make yourself an enemy of God. I think there is, at the heart of this text, one last offer of repentance for Saul. I think it's a pattern. Every time Samuel confronts Saul for what Saul does, We've seen halfway repentance. We've seen partial repentance. We've seen no repentance. Um, We've seen feigned repentance in his responses to David. I think even here, when the woman offers him food to sit in this tent and to eat in fellowship and communion at this table, um, there is even an offer here to refuse to partake. But as this happened with, Samuel, with Saul again and again and again, those who are close to him, who refused to call him to repentance, to call him again to the mercy of God, encourage him in his sin. And so he eats, and so he leaves. But one other thing to point out, which I forgot to mention earlier, um, but to give you a, a fuller picture of the the insanity of rejecting the word of God and how it flips everything upside down. One of the themes, one of the, um, I would say, 
inescapable truths at the heart of Scripture is if you reject the word of God, then you are bound to call evil good and to call good evil. There's an interesting moment when he comes before this woman and she's kind of letting him know that she's putting her life on the line. Look at verse 10. But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Here's how confused and upside down this man is. I swear by the Lord that I will not obey the Lord. That's what he just said. I swear by the God who reigns that I will not do what the God who reigns has explicitly told me to do. And there's an odd sort of, I I don't know if you found this as you read this text, that there's an odd sort of sympathy that grows in you. You don't see the witch for what the Bible describes her as, as someone who is evil, someone who's actually corrupting the people of God. Um, You you don't see Saul swearing to not kill her as a bad thing. You see it as a, a good thing. When it's the most clear and plain thing in the world from the text, He is swearing an oath to God to disobey God. But here's the offer of the gospel. You do not have to sit at the table of demons. You do not have to be bound in the silence of God. You don't have to ignore him anymore. You don't have to turn away from his warnings. You don't have to turn away from his instruction. You don't have to turn away from his promises and his grace. See, every Sunday we come to this table, not the table of demons and the house of death, but the table of the Lord set in the very presence of the Lord where God speaks. And this word that goes out again and again and again is a precious and beautiful invitation. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, sometimes he's shocking. Sometimes he's terrifying. Sometimes he's precious beyond words. Sometimes he comforts. And sometimes, man, he he discombobulates. Uh, But at the end of the day, he comes and he makes precious and glorious promises to us at this table. So come and eat. Come, receive his word, trust his word, believe his word, seek to obey his word, repent in line with his word, receive the forgiveness that's told to us in his word. Marvel at the God who made a world and flooded it with grace and beauty and mystery such that it can only be navigated, not through Newtonian physics, Not through merely applying the right rules. By hearing the very words of God and finding life in them. Let's pray and prepare for communion.